Hello, this is Dr. Dudley Lamming, and today we'll be mapping branched amino acids on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected. We are all unique and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Dudley Lamming. Dr. Dudley Lamming is a faculty member of the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism within the Department of Medicine at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He began his lab at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 2014, following completion of his PhD at Harvard University in 2008 and postdoctoral studies at the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Research in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Dr. Lamming's research focuses on understanding how nutrient-responsive signaling pathways can be harnessed to promote health and longevity. He is a fellow of the American Aging Association and the Gerontological Society of America, a recipient of the Gerontological Society of America Nathan Schock New Investigator Award, and the American Physiological Society Endocrinology and Metabolism Section New Investigator Award, and an editorial board member of several peer-reviewed scientific journals. Dr. Lamming, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thank you so much for having me. I have so many questions for you, and I'm excited to dive into the nuances that you explore with regards to protein intake and branched-chain amino acids. But I'm wondering if you can just kick us off by talking about what branched-chain amino acids are, and then hopefully we can dive into why they matter in our conversations about bio-individualized nutrition, health, longevity, metabolic disease, but what are they? Sounds great. So there are about 20 common amino acids that we think of in our diet, and they compose basically all the protein in our body. And nine of those amino acids are essential, which means if we or most mammals don't have them in our diet, bad things will happen to us. So we really need them. Nine of these essential amino acids, uh, three of them are the branched chain amino acids, which are called leucine, isoleucine, and valine. And so uh, not only are they essential amino acids, they also are the subject of a lot of attention from people who are interested in weightlifting or bodybuilding or just exercising and building muscle mass in general. They compose a lot of the skeletal muscle protein. And people may be familiar with branched amino acid supplements as something that are sometimes advertised and sold for use in exercise programs. 
It's really fascinating to me when I listen to your research. I'm, I'm wondering what kind of pushback you're met with in terms of the heightened conversations about protein and also carbohydrate restriction when you're talking about these branched-chain amino acids and, as I'm sure we'll get into, their restriction for metabolic health. Well, I mean, I think everybody has sort of strong feelings about their dietary preferences. And, you know, I'm not here to pass judgment on those. I think one of the things that our research is also beginning to reveal is that the exact composition of diet might vary between person to person based on their individual genetic makeup. And so what might be the best diet for one person might not be the best diet for other people. And that doesn't even take into account activity level, which we can touch on a bit as well. But certainly there are definitely strong feelings by a lot of people about any sort of research on diets. Yeah, that was really important. And I love that you pointed out that we may need that differentiation that we've kind of lost in the mainstream conversation about diets, not kind of lost. We've definitely lost. So tell us a little bit more about your research into these branched chain amino acids. Sure. Story starts a little bit back in dietary protein. So dietary protein has a very good reputation overall as something that promotes health and you know strength. There are a couple of reasons for that. One is this link to um, exercise in particular, but also dietary protein is one of the three major macronutrients, the others being fats and sugars. And there's been lots of research saying that, you know, people are eating too much sugar, too much refined sugar, that fats are bad for us due to cardiovascular disease and so on. Well, protein has sort of had a neutral or positive message. And the more protein you eat, A, protein helps us feel full anyway. So it might help reducing caloric intake but also protein just displaces these other nutrients. And so we started getting into this on the basis of some really interesting mouse research by Steve Simpson and David Lacouter's laboratory in Sydney, led by Samantha Solon Beignet back in 2014, who took sort of a, a neutral approach and fed mice different diets with varying different macronutrient ratios. The thing that was sort of surprising that came out of that work was that the mice that lived the longest were ones that are actually on low-protein diets. And actually, low-protein, high-carbohydrate diets turned out to be the way to extend lifespan the most in the mouse. When you look at humans, humans, of course, are not mice. But if you look at human epidemiological data, of course, you know, nutritional epidemiology sometimes gets a bad rap. But there are some advantages. One is, you know, we're looking at real people. And the second is that we can look at people over a very long period of time. And the sort of one major message that has come out of that is that people who are eating more protein have a higher risk of diabetes. And so we wanted to see that in the context of randomized clinical trial. And we looked with Luigi Fontana, who is leading such a trial, at some metabolic outcomes. And interestingly, humans on a low protein diet, where seven to 9% of their calories came from protein, it's about half what a human normally eats were these people who were in their mid-50s, lost weight and had lower blood glucose levels and lost fat mass over the course of about six weeks. So both at the large epidemiological level and the smaller randomized clinical trial level, dietary protein restriction, reducing the amount of dietary protein, seems to be beneficial. And that's true for both mice and humans. So again, I have so many questions. Did the makeup of the type of protein and the type of carbohydrate that was explored 
make a difference? Or do we know anything about that when we say protein restriction and assuming that that's going to increase the amount of our other macronutrients? Do we know anything about quality of those macronutrients in this research so far? That's something that we and a few others have been starting to dive into now to see how those macronutrients interact. And it does seem from some of the data that has been published that there is some interaction that maybe certain refined sugars might be worse for us, particularly in the context of lower protein diets, but that remains to be worked out. My own interpretation of a sort of nutritional epidemiology studies is, you know, a lot of these studies suggest that maybe plant protein is better than animal protein. But, you know, I think so few people really follow a vegan diet that it's sort of hard to really get the numbers to prove that in a human context. So I think the jury is probably still out on source of protein for humans. Yeah, and source of carbohydrate. And, you know, what I'm also struck by is the internal mechanisms, right? So who are we talking about? Like if we talk about vegans, like what are they eating? Who are they? Also in terms of the protein connection to a higher risk of diabetes, can you talk into that mechanism? And is it true for people who already have sort of like a metabolic milieu in motion internally? So this brings us over to the branched amino acids quite well. So the branched amino acids have been associated with poor metabolic health for a really long time. So it was in the late 1960s, it was shown they're elevated in, in the blood of people who were diabetic. And since that time, more recently, over the past decade or two, it's been shown that higher branched amino acid levels are found in the blood of people who are obese, people who are diabetic, people who are pre-diabetic, mouse and rats that are models of diet-induced obesity or genetic-induced obesity. The level of glycated hemoglobin, which is a readout for blood sugar control, correlates very well in people with the level of branched amino acids in their blood. And so there seems to be a pretty good association there between diabetes and metabolic unhealth and having higher blood levels of branched amino acids. And overall, it seems like the more branched amino acids you eat in your diet, the higher the branched amino acid levels in your blood are likely to be. It's, again, like just so fascinating for me to make some of these connections because as you said earlier on, this is something, the inclusion of branched chain amino acids, whether it's in supplements or in protein powders is touted as beneficial, especially for muscle and recovery from working out. And yet it may only be beneficial, if that, for those with a certain metabolic phenotype and who are male and working out a lot. I mean, I don't know if I have that right and I'm probably oversimplifying it, but it seems to me like we got off on this foot in terms of nutrition recommendations that isn't, well, of course, isn't one size fits all, but is based on a really small portion of the population. And I definitely would say, you know, when we think about branched amino acids and dietary protein, you know, the sort of connection to exercise has always been on our minds. And of course, whenever we talk about a human study that's been conducted, you know, over the last four or five decades or mouse studies that we do, almost all of these studies are focused on a population that's largely sedentary. And so we begin to work exercise into some of our experiments as well. And it does seem that at least from a protein intake that exercise and dietary protein in a mouse are okay. It's that when you're sedentary, 
that idea of increasing protein intake or eating high protein diets or higher levels of branched amino acids are probably going to be more damaging or risky. And are there particular antecedents besides the level of physical activity, like male or female, like any difference in heritage or race or geographic locale that we're aware of in relation to the research and the risks? I think for the most part, no. The question of male versus female is quite interesting. You know, in mice, at least the work that we've done so far suggests that branched amino acid restriction is much more beneficial for males. And so male mice, where we restrict the level of branched amino acids by about two thirds, so it's still nutritionally sufficient, but a lot lower than they would normally be eating. Those mice live about 30% longer. And they're healthier too, in terms of, you know, frailty, they don't have, you know, weak muscles or anything like that. Whereas females don't get that benefit. We don't know for sure about whether females are sort of less susceptible to branched amino acids in general, or there's some threshold effects where the levels are different in males and females to see the benefits of restriction. But at least overall, it seems like branched amino acid restriction is more beneficial overall in males than females. And when we're talking about this restriction, what kind of clinical outcomes are we seeing, or how could you relate what you're seeing in the research to clinical outcomes, are we seeing a reduction in hemoglobin A1C, a difference in insulin marker? What would you say are the clinical results? So there have been two short-term trials in Europe now on branched amino acid restriction in humans. A couple of them were, were done quite well, I think. You know, overall, their limit is that they're all sort of on, you know, relatively short-term studies. And in these short-term studies, both studies observed increases in insulin sensitivity. And that was true both in sort of a normal population as well as a population of type 2 diabetics. So when we're thinking about what to do with this in practice, this information, do you have any particular recommendations about how we'd be considering the protein restriction for the reduction in the branch chain amino acids? Well, you know, if we think that mice and humans behave the same. And of course, they're not the same, right? We still need to make sure that observations that we make in the mice, you know, translate to humans well. Then I think the main issue would be that we shouldn't recommend, for the most part, that people who are sedentary and on the younger side, probably under the age of 65, consume more than the RDA branched amino acids. A little study that we did here in Wisconsin suggests that sort of your average overweight American probably eats about three to four times the RDA of branched amino acids. So bringing that back down might be beneficial for a lot of reasons, but also might directly improve metabolic health overall based on our studies. The elderly, those over 65, might have different nutritional needs. And you know there are plenty of people who say that the elderly should be eating more protein to fight off sarcopenia and muscle loss that comes with aging. And we don't have a view on that yet, but we are doing some later life intervention studies now in animals to try and address that. It's just such fascinating research. And it, again, as I said, brings up so many questions for me as a clinician, but also as a nutrition professional. But Dr. Lamming, I'm wondering what I didn't ask you, what I didn't think to ask you from my lens that you wish more clinicians knew. Well, overall, I think the, the general message, right, that more protein is good for you is probably going to be very uh, limited. And 
you know, basically we've been doing a, a wide variety of studies now to do genetic mapping in mice. And if our mouse results could be applied to humans, then it would suggest that some people are going to benefit from a lot from a low protein diet, but there might be other people who benefit from a high protein diet. And, you know, trying to figure out how we can assign sort of the best diet to the right person is something that I think is going to be really important over the next few years. And hopefully something that will be guided by, you know, this research as well as studies in humans. Such a great point, Dr. Lamming. Thank you so much for the research you're doing and for sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you for having me. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks go out to Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, Sandra Brower, Evan Hollingsworth, Heidi Kaufman-Lakowitz, and Rowan Bradley for their support making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month emerging course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.